This is Jim English, and welcome to my podcast. It's called Who Gives a Shit Files, and I really appreciate you listening. Now, what we're going to talk about today is the profound effect that James Bond had on the CIA. And unfortunately, our stories starts with one of the darkest hours in the history of the United States, and that is December 7th, 1941, at 8 a.m. in Hawaii on the island of Oahu, the Japanese conducted an unprovoked attack on Pearl Harbor with their fighter pilots. And it was vicious. And please note that I am not using the word surprise for a good reason, because it was not a surprise. So Franklin Delano Roosevelt, who was president in 1941, described the event as a day that will live in infamy, which is absolutely an apt description. 2,400 Americans lost their lives. 300 airplanes were destroyed. 20 naval vessels were damaged or destroyed. Now, interesting note about this is that most of these ships were cruisers or battleships. Fortunately for the United States, there were no aircraft carriers at Pearl Harbor. And why that is so relevant, because about nine months later at the Battle of Midway, our aircraft carriers for the United States defeated the aircraft carriers of the Empire of Japan. And the Battle of Midway was really the turning point of the war in the Pacific. So what's interesting, though, about this whole thing about Pearl Harbor is it should never have happened. We should have known and we did know that war was coming and the United States and Japan were getting closer and closer to war since the 1930s. And what happened is Japan declared war on China and they invaded China. They were building a war machine and they needed China's resources, their metal, their oil, so they invaded China. And the United States responded by declaring economic and political sanctions on Japan in 1937. Now, the antagonism between United States and Japan goes way back to the 1850s. The United States had been bullying Japan for decades and were treating them like second-class citizens in the global community, and there was resentment that was building up over time. But the Japanese then, when they were invading China, did something that was pretty gruesome. And what they did is, in a city called Nanjing, they slaughtered 200 to 300,000 Chinese. And um, by the way, Japan has been apologizing uh, for what they did for the last 80 years. But macabre stories in 1937 started emanating from uh, Nanjing. It included mass rapes, killing of innocent children, killing of women, slaughtering of civilians. And there was one of the stories that caught my eye that actually hit an American newspaper was that Japanese officers were having a race to see who could kill 100 people the fastest with swords. 
And this horrified the United States. So they put an oil embargo on Japan and the political and economic and oil sanctions did absolutely nothing to, to break the resolve of the Japanese in their war machine. What it did is it simply drove the two Pacific powers, the United States and Japan, farther apart. So the powers that be in Washington knew that war was coming. They could see the buildup of the Japanese war machine. So it was just a matter of when and where the empire of Japan would strike. So we knew this is kind of the context for Pearl Harbor. Now, in 1941, we were the only major power in the world to not have a single intelligence entity focusing on international threats to our security. I mean, how dumb were we? So there was war going on in Europe. There was war was eminent in the Pacific and we had no intelligence agency focused internationally on threats to the United States. So we had these brilliant men leading our democracy and pulling us out of the depression but they had no foresight to implement an agency like they had in Germany, in Japan, our two biggest enemies, England, Russia, Australia, New Zealand. Uh, it's just sheer idiocy, and it costs us the lives of 2,400 men. Now, what we did have were several disjointed, unconnected government bureaucratic departments obtaining and ignoring, in this case, intelligent information. Um, what we had, we had the FBI, we had naval intelligence, we had the Department of Dep Defense, and the State Department. They were all getting and obtaining information, but they never talked to each other. They never talked to each other. So, you know, what we needed and was one intelligence agency obtaining, evaluating, disseminating information that was a threat. And we should have been focusing on Japan. They should have had one agency focusing on what the Japanese were up to because the signs of Japanese bombing Pearl Harbor were everywhere. And there's dozens of things that you could point to, but I'm just gonna point out a couple here. So in January of 1941, the Peruvian embassy told the State Department that the Japanese were going to bomb Pearl Harbor before Christmas. So Peru, a mid-sized South American country, had the reconnaissance, intelligence, spy resources to figure this out. And they told us and they told the State Department. Now, in 1941, February of 1941, Eric Severide was America's most esteemed war correspondent. And he was told by the anti-Japanese Korean underground that Pearl Harbor would be bombed in, by Christmas of 1941. And what did he do? He told the FBI. So you got Peru telling the State Department and you've got, you've got Mr. Severide telling the FBI. Now, in, to our credit, 
1939-1940, we developed a, an excellent team that was great at decoding messages from Japan. And that was, their, that was their function, and they did a really good job. And they decoded several messages that made it obvious that Pearl Harbor was a target. So a decoded message was received and sent to naval intelligence. So once again, you got the FBI, you got the State Department, now you got naval intelligence. And the decoded message said that war was going to commence on December 7th. That was the Japanese leadership telling all their generals and their officers that, that we were going to war on December 7th. Uh, Naval intelligence also got a decoded message from the Japanese on December 5th talking about the ships that were currently anchored in Pearl Harbor. So this was two days before the bombing. I mean, we had plenty of time to figure this out. And there were many other decoded messages that either inferred or stated outright the time and place of the bombing of Pearl Harbor. This, once again, shouldn't have happened. There were bits and pieces of information strewn all over Washington among different individuals and different departments, and nobody was collating, gathering, analyzing, and developing a strategy to address all this information that was being sent. So. My assertion if the CIA, and we know that the CIA's reputation ebbs and flows, and actually I'm going to talk a little bit about that later, in, if there had been the CIA in the late 30s, that Pearl Harbor would never have happened. We would not have lost 2,400 American lives in that bombing. Now, FDR created what he called the Office of Strategic Services. We were still profoundly embarrassed at the failure of American intelligence community. So they started up, once again, Office of Strategic Services, the OSS, um, created in 1941. And it was a precursor to the CIA, the Central Intelligence Agency. And what the OSS did was it conducted acts of sabotage. It waged propaganda wars. It coordinated and financed and trained anti-Nazi and anti-Japanese resistant groups. As a matter of fact, it trained and funded Mao Zedong's Red Army in China, which we fought in the Korean War six, seven years later. The OSS had operatives in deep cover in Nazi Germany. And as a matter of fact, one of my friends in a prior podcast called Kevin's Beats the Odds, and Kevin Roberts talks about a stepfather who was in the OSS. And the OSS was all over Europe. They were all over the South Pacific. They were all over the North Pacific. They were in Scandinavia. They were everywhere. And they were a very effective instrument and helped the Allied forces win the war. Now, it was dissolved after World War II because it was designed to be a wartime intelligence agency. So Washington and the president now, the new president of Harry S. Truman, 
we're really still stunned and embarrassed about the failure of American intelligence at Pearl. So what they did in 1947, the National Security Act was passed, creating the Central Intelligence Agency, which I will refer to as the CIA. And the CIA was a civilian agency tasked with collecting, evaluating, and disseminating intelligence data that affects our national security. And it was focused internationally and because the FBI was focused internally, at least theoretically, that's the way it was supposed to work. But the CIA under Truman, and I have no idea why Harry set it up this way, is that there were two branches of the CIA. And one was the Office of Special Operations, OSO, who reported to the CIA director. And the other one was called the Office of Policy Coordination, which was OPC, that reported to the Secretary of State. So what you have is you have an organization that has two distinct reporting lines. And what that did is that created a very competitive environment and inhibited, impeded the CIA from doing its job. For example, most CIA stations, both internationally and domestically, had two separate chiefs. The OPC and the OSO were constantly arm wrestling for funding and manpower. The two entities were stealing agents from each other. It was a dysfunctional, disorganized CIA, and it simply was not effective. But that changed after Dwight David Eisenhower, also known as Ike, and I'll be referring to him as Ike, trounced Adelaide Stevenson in the election of 1952. It was an old landslide. Now, Ike was sick as hell of war. And he was an officer in World War I, and he was a, elevated to a five-star general in World War II. He was in charge of all Allied forces in Europe. So this was not only the U.S., but it was also the French forces, the British forces, Canadian, Belgium, Australia, New Zealand. He was in charge of the European theater of World War II, which was quite a responsibility. Now, he was responsible for D-Day landing on June 6, 1944. And almost 10,000 Allied soldiers lost their lives in a 24-hour period. He issued troops into the Battle of the Bulge, where the Allied forces incurred 75,000 casualties. Under Ike's watch, World War II the Allies' armies suffered over a half a million casualties. He sent hundreds of thousands of men to their death, and it weighed heavily on his mind. This was an unbelievable burden to accept. I mean, yes, he was trained for this job. Yes, he did it effectively. Yes, it was at this point in history that we needed a man like Ike to win World War II and defeat the Germans in Europe. But nonetheless, this was going to weigh heavily on somebody's mind. I mean, he would, he would close his eyes at night, and I'm sure he would see thousands of faces of dead soldiers that were killed under his watch. Now, Eisenhower's parents were deeply religious, and he was a man of profound conscience. And what also it didn't help is that he was a man of German ancestry. So 
He, since, since what, 9% of the people in Germany were killed, he knows that what he did was killing people that were distantly related to him in Germany. So you can understand why Ike would do anything to avoid war. Any man with a profound conscience would do the same. But what happened in 1952 when he was elected? He had to deal with the Korean War. Didn't get any easier for him. Now, what was going on in 1952 with the Korean War was a stalemated situation in Korea, and there was no end in sight. Uh, and the last thing he wanted to do was send more young men off to die. So he negotiated a peace. They drew a line in Korea, and South Korea became capitalistic, and United States-oriented, and North Korea became North Korea, communistic, totalitarianism, and a dictatorship that was influenced heavily by the Chinese at the time. And what Ike did is he decided the best way to avoid war was through clandestine operations. So he decided to resource and develop the CIA. Covert operations were the best, best way to prevent war. The Cold War was heating up, and the Cold War was in Eastern Europe versus Western Europe. It was the United States versus the Soviet Union. It was capitalism versus communism. And, and this was heating up. I mean, the, in, in Berlin, the capitalists and the communists, the United States and the Russians, were divided by a flimsy wall that could have ignited a war at any time. So what he was doing, he being Ike, he wanted to fund and implement a CIA that would employ tactics like bribery, propaganda, subversion, assassination of government leaders, and overthrowing governments to avoid war. And the CIA did this. And once again, the ends justify the means. And sorry, the means justify the ends. Sorry, I got that wrong. But what he thought in his rationale was it would be better that dozens of people got killed in a covert operative assignment than thousands of people dying or the collateral damage associated with war like starvation and slaughter of innocent people. He also wanted the CIA to counter communist expansion like the OSS in World War II, the CIA would fund, resource, and train anti-communist guerrillas all over the world. And the, it was interestingly enough that it would also fund uh, government that were fighting off communism that we perceived as allies. And in order to enact his vision and to get this done, he needed to stop the infighting. You know, there was, there was a, you know, once again, an arm wrestling contest between the head of the CIA and the Secretary of State. And that created a dysfunctional CIA. And Ike was a shrewd politician. He was a smart man. I mean, you don't rise to the level 
of being head of the Allied forces and coordinating all those egotistical generals from all those different countries into one fighting army without being a political genius. So what he did is he named Alan Dulles, the director of the CIA, and then he took his brother, John Dulles, and made him secretary of state. And by the way, this was unprecedented at the time. This is the first time two brothers were appointed to such lofty positions in our government. And with two strokes of a pen, I transformed the CIA into a cohesive synergistic agency. And the CIA was now ready to take on communism and it was ready to become the intelligence international arm of the 1950s. So the CIA was growing up in the 1950s and I wanna paint a somewhat of a picture of what the 1950s were like. And I read this term when I was researching and I loved it, is the 1950s has been referred to as the golden age of paranoia. I like that. And for good reason. So you got Joe McCarthy's Senate hearings. He was a senator and he thought communists were everywhere, in the government, in Hollywood, uh, under, under your bed you had a communist. I mean, that was the term in the 50s. There were communists everywhere and they were trying to overthrow the government from within. And he created irrational fear of communism and that was called the Red Scare internally in the United States. Now, Russia had the atom bomb in, in the 50s and this created all sorts of concern. Uh, you know, nuclear war and global destruction was one push of the button away. And we're not talking about a battle hero field here. We're talking about the vaporization, the total of annihilation of countries and regions and nuclear fallout. I mean, this created an incredible amount of anxiety and worry in the United States at the time. Now, UFOs were sighted in 1950 at a unprecedented rate before, and they were they were, they were seen sh covering and shadowing in both the USSR and in the United States where our nuclear arsenals were. I mean, what were these aliens doing looking at our nuclear arsenals? And this, this was all over the paper. This was not secret. And, you know, Hollywood, of course, they're going to jump on this paranoia. And they started filming movies that dwelled on alien invasions and nuclear extinction. And I remember seeing a bunch of them as a kid and they were hauntingly, and it really, it fanned the flames of paranoia in the United States. You had the Cold War, you had the Berlin Wall, the communist expansion into Southeastern Asia. You had the Central America, um, you know, communism, and this fueled the feeling of uneasiness. And I have to tell you that people were thinking the end of the world, nuclear holocaust, nuclear winter is right around the corner. It could happen any day, any minute, that the world would be obliterated. Pretty bad situation. So the CIA also in the 50s contributed mightily to the golden age of paranoia. I mean, the CIA were these faceless men and they were dressed, 
dressed in dark trench coats, running covert operations. And there was no transparency, none at all. I did not want the public to know what they were up to. And they were secret bombings, secret assassinations, secret missions, and overthrowing of governments. And once again, the CIA did all these things. Not only was this a perception, but they did these things as well. Spies lurked in the shadow, ready to pounce on the innocent as well as the guilty. I mean, the CIA was shrouded in secrecy, and it really contributed to the paranoid mood and feeling of anxiety in the 1950s that was pervasive among the people in the United States. But something happened. A global phenomena occurred that changed our perception of spies and the CIA forever. And Ian Fleming, a former British naval intelligence officer, created the great James Bond. And these books were bestsellers in the mid-50s. And James Bond was a super spy. He was a ruthless, blunt instrument. 007, which was his British Secret Service code, had the license to kill. And he could kill whoever he deemed necessary. But he always did this under the guise of righteousness and justice. And the evil foes of democracy better beware because James Bond was out to get you. And the fact that he was a ruthless assassin only touched the surface of his persona because he was the king of cool. He was debonair. He was sophisticated. He was nonchalant. I mean, he wanted his vodka martini shaken, not stirred. You know, evil women would see the heirs of their ways with one kiss from the 007 lips. And all women wanted to be him and all women, I'm sorry, all men, well, I'm sorry, I'm laughing at this, all men wanted to be like him. And it's true. It's true that he was revered as an assassin and also as a ladies' man, a drinker, a smoker, a hard-living man. And Ian Fleming's James Bond, and by the way, interesting little point of trivia here, James Bond was named after a Caribbean bird watcher, of all things. And Mr. Bond is among the most iconic figures in literary history. From the mid-50s to the early 60s, 12 James Bond novels became bestsellers. And the perception of secret agents as shadowy figures lurking in the dark really changed. It changed to an invulnerable, invincible, urbane woman magnet who always fought and destroyed the forces of evil. I mean, he was the man. He killed all the bad guys and won the day for the good guys. And James Bond, you know, Hollywood obviously jumped on this, and James Bond became the most iconic figure in film history. Now, the only person, the only figure, the only literary figure, fictional figure, that is close to him is Sherlock Holmes. And I find it ironic that both are British. Anyways, even though James Bond worked for MI6, which the, was the British intelligence services, he had a good buddy in the CIA called uh, Felix Leiter. And in the movies, there have been several people that have played Felix Leiter. Now, 
the Americans in Western Europe, you know, drank up James Bond novels like vodka martinis. And by 1960, the U.S. perception of the CIA was totally reversed. Even though the means were ethically questionable, it was necessary, just like James Bond. He killed people indiscriminately, cruelly, but it was the name of righteousness and goodness. So the secret agent, the spy from the CIA, as well as MI6, the British intelligence agency, was romanticized and glorified. And with that, the perception changed of the spy community and funding for the CIA skyrocketed. Uh, and so, you know, this, this one character in these 12 novels totally changed the funding of the CIA. And all of a sudden, the CIA had more manpower. They had more resources. They were favorably looked on by the, by the uh, United States and Western Europe and totally changed. But there was also something that was even more fascinating is that Alan Dulles, the director of the CIA, he loved James Bond novels. He devoured them like Russian caviar. And by the way, James Bond loved Russian caviar. He made of, and he loved Russian vodka too. Now he may have fought the Russians and he may have killed the Russians, but he liked their caviar and their vodka. And so what Dulles did is he started corresponding with Ian Fleming, and who was the author of the James Bond novels, and they quickly became friends. I mean, let's face it, they were both spies, and they both admired each other. And what happened in the first couple of Bond novels, the British service, the Secret Service, would come to the rescue of the blundering CIA. Now, the CIA was not painted in a bad light, they were just inept and you needed the British Secret Service and James Bond to ride in on the white horse and take care of business like they did in, you know, in Dr. No and Goldfinger. And, you know, so it was the British Secret Service were the heroes. But what Dulles did is by befriending Fleming, he convinced, he convinced the author of the James Bond novels to paint the CIA in a better light. He knew that the novels molded the CIA perception. And so that's what Ian Fleming did, is he started painting the CIA as competent, a good partner, uh, against evil, and that really helped the perception of the CIA. Now, something else happened is Ian Fleming told Dulles that the CIA was behind in gadgets. And let's face it, part of the intrigue, part of what makes James Bond movies and novels so great are the gadgets. The, you know, the Austin Martin with the ejector seat, the oil slick, the, the grill with machine guns. I mean, those gadgets are part of the James Bond legacy. So the CIA director took Ian Fleming's criticism to heart, and he appointed a staff that worked and was tasked with implementing Bond-type gadgets. And the CIA 
developed a poison shoe knife. Now, if you remember from Russia with Love, James Bond had already saved the world and he had already gotten the girl, but one of the bad guys was actually a woman and she was posing as a maid in the hotel room and she clicked her heel and this knife came out and there was poison in the knife. And she tried to kick James Bond, but of course James would, he prevailed. But the CIA developed a poison shoe knife. And they also, now if you remember Goldfinger, there were the homing beacons where he ha they were magnetized and James could follow Goldfinger all over Europe. Well, the CIA implemented that. They also put cameras in pigeons. They put cameras in cigarette packs. They developed an intruder detection device. So when you leave your hotel room, if you're a secret agent, you can find out if somebody's been in your room and how long they were in your room. They even put a radio in a pipe. So if you were in trouble and you had your pipe there, the bad guys would be talking to you and that conversation would be transmitted via radio to the CIA. And at one point, Fleming was thinking about killing off James Bond, 007. And Dulles was thinking, whoa, that can't happen. You know, the man's invulnerable. He's invincible. He's super spy. You can't kill him off. That would affect the CIA's perception. And I want my funding. I want my resources. So he talked him out of it. So Ian Fleming decided that he wasn't going to kill off James Bond. He was going to keep writing the, the, the novels. Now... James Bond was our invincible, invulnerable CIA agent. I'm sorry, British Secret Service agent. And, but Ian Fleming was not a invincible and was not invulnerable. What Ian Fleming did is he imbued the characteristics of himself into his fictional counterpart, of James Bond. James Bond was always smoking. He was always drinking. I mean, he drank sake. He drank Heineken's. Daniel Craig drank Heineken's. He drank vodka, martinis, and champagne, and brandy, um, and smoked cigarettes throughout the movies and throughout the novels. But unfortunately, so did Ian Fleming, and he left us too early. He left us on August 12th in, of 1964, and he was age 56. Now, Mr. Fleming created one of the most enduring figures in film and literary history, the famous James Bond. And from the inception of James Bond, the world saw the secret agent and the intelligent community through totally different lights. And what happened is James Bond and Ian Fleming had a monumental effect on the perception, funding, resources, and operations of the intelligence agency of the United States. Now, thank you for listening. I appreciate it. And I hope you enjoyed the podcast.